Our text this morning uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves in your word. Your word is inerrant, it is infallible, it speaks with authority, and it is a spiritual power. It goes forth as you purpose it to do each time, and accomplishes what you purposed to do each time. It does not return to you void, but accomplishes all that you have purposed. Therefore, we look to you and to you alone, and we believe what the Scriptures teach, that when the people of God are in the house of God on the Lord's day, and the man whom God has called stands and speaks the word of God and preaches aright, that somehow in that process, fallible though we all may be, your work is done. And so we look to you and ask that you would do it and glorify yourself among us. In Jesus' name. Well, we, we come this morning to a very difficult passage of Scripture. Um, it's not difficult in terms of understanding what it says. There are no obscure or rare Greek words in here whose interpretation is unclear. There are no manuscripts that exist with divergent readings that we would have to make a decision about which is the original one. Rather, it is the subject matter itself which is difficult, and uh, we can see this in the fact that most contemporary English translations will choose euphemisms to translate the relevant terms, and most preachers, when they take up this text, try and make it about employer-employee relations and the nature of work, and it's not that these passages, this passage doesn't have anything to teach us about that, but it really is ducking a difficult issue to just take that up and treat it that way. It, it probably won't surprise you that I'm not a fan of either of those approaches, and it probably also won't surprise you that I'm not going to duck any of these hard issues. We will face them together, and we will face them squarely. The Bible is the Word of God, and in it, God speaks to us about who He is and about what He requires of us, and it says what it says, and we must grapple with what it says and come to terms with it, even when it's hard. However, we must also be aware that the enemy of our souls will use every opportunity to create havoc in our midst and to try and derail 
some of the cherished goals of this congregation and the long-term progress in our midst. And so I'm going to tell you in advance where I am going, and I'm going to work very hard to communicate clearly, very clearly. Please pay careful attention to what I actually say, not to what you think I said, all right? And if there's any question in your mind, there is a video record of everything I say, which is basically immediately available on Facebook after the service. And so make use of that if you are not clear about something. And if you're still not clear, it might be because from time to time I misspeak as well. And we should ask the Lord to keep that to a minimum. Uh, what, I, that what I say actually reflects what I actually mean to say. So uh, I'm going to ask you to, to pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and I've been praying about this. I'm also going to tell you where I am going. We're going to deal with this passage in three weeks. This week, we will explore from a biblical perspective why slavery came into being and why it persisted for so long. Next week, we will explore slavery in its biblical and, in particular, its New Testament Greco-Roman context. And then on February 5th, the third Sunday, we are going to grapple with the unique evil and destructiveness of slavery as it was practiced in the United States of America and seek to evaluate it from a biblical perspective. And I'm just going to ask you again, please pray for me. I have been thinking about these sermons for two years now, uh, knowing that when I started Ephesians that this day was coming. On uh, November 5th, 2021, I took my family to Pittsburgh to see the traveling exhibit on Pompeii, in part because I wanted to, to gain relevant and up-to-date information from that era on this issue. In other words, Pompeii preserved a slice of Greco-Roman life basically in the same era that Paul was writing all these things. As a matter of fact, if you go to the 24th chapter of Acts, you see Paul uh, in front of a, a, a couple who's a, the Roman governor and his wife, Felix and Drusilla, um, and Drusilla and her son died at Pompeii. So what that had to say was very interesting to me about this issue. And, and so I, I just say that to you uh, to, so that you know that I have not taken this lightly. I've thought a lot about it and about how to present it to you, and, uh, and we're just going to do the best we can do. So the question I want to tackle today is how and why did slavery originally come into being? Well, for this issue, as with so many other issues, we have to go back to Genesis, and we find in our early chapters of Genesis that God makes the man and God makes the woman and he puts them in the garden and they've got work to do. They're put in the garden to work it and to keep it. And God divided up their duties under a few basic headings. They were to bring order to the garden. They were also to expand the boundaries of the garden Outwards. In other words, the whole earth was not garden. God just planted the garden on a little part of it, and it was this wonderful little beautiful place. And as they were fruitful and multiplied, they were to push the boundaries outward. 
And, and as they filled the earth, they were to expand the garden. They were to bring order to things. And they were to subdue and rule the creation. Now, uh, some people in our day, uh, contemporaries of ours, don't like that language of subdue and rule because it has been used in a past to, as a way to justify things that actually damage the world that God has put us in. And to a certain extent, they have a point. I mean, I, it's interesting to live in this area, and, uh, and I don't think that God had in mind for Adam and his offspring to create a situation like the one we have, for instance, in the Mahoning River, uh, where you don't want to swim in the Mahoning River, and you don't want to eat fish out of the Mahoning River, so I'm told, because uh, it's polluted. And maybe it's better than it was. I know there's one river in Pennsylvania that since the 70s, the EPA has told you to stay out of. Don't go in there. Don't eat the fish. Don't swim. Uh, recently, they've revised that because now all the toxic stuff has been covered over on the bottom with sand. And as long as you don't dredge it up, you're not getting exposed to very much of it. But all that stuff was not good. It just wasn't good. I'm told that uh, the Cuyahoga River uh, in Cleveland repeatedly caught fire in the late 19th and early 20th century. Guys, rivers aren't supposed to burn. It's, a, it's, it's God's river. He likes his river. He made his river. And he's not a fan of rivers that can catch fire. Okay? So there's been a lot of stuff done that shouldn't have been done. Well, when God tells our first parents to subdue the earth and rule it, perhaps a better way to express that is that he's entrusting them with responsibility for the earth and for the well-being of the earth. Human beings are supposed to expand their administration of the natural world in a way that blesses both themselves and the natural world. One last piece of the puzzle of their, their job description is found in this episode where Adam names the animals. In the Hebrew mind, a name was an exposition of the character of the person or the place or the thing that is named. And so when God brings these animals to Adam to name them and see what he would call them, he's drawing out from Adam the fact that he has been granted a deep understanding of the nature of each creature. And he was to make use of that understanding about the nature of each creature when he managed the creation. So Adam had work to do. Lots of work. So much work that he needed help. And that's why God made Eve. But if you think about it, Adam's work before the fall was pleasant. It was work. Probably made him tired. But it was a good kind of tired. He, and, and he was equipped to carry out his work. And so we find here in these first three chapters of Genesis something that theologians have called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. And in previous sermons, I've asked you to ponder the question, how did Adam garden? And I think that Jesus tells us when he says that once we have sufficient spiritual insight and character, we will be able to say to this tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. 
Or we will be able to say to this mountain, be uprooted and be cast into the sea. I think that's probably how Adam gardened. We shouldn't think of Adam as some sort of primitive caveman um, because that sort of thinking belongs to the myth of evolutionism where the things that come later are always improvements on the things that came before. It's not like Adam was the Model T and you and I are the Mercedes uh, SLK. It's not that way. No, Adam was amazing. Adam was brilliant. Adam had abilities that God had to suppress in his descendants as part of his judgment and curse and which one day will be restored to us as the people of God. Now, as I mentioned before, we've got this dominion mandate, this cultural mandate. We find this implicit in the first three chapters of Genesis. And, and the idea is that as Adam's offspring expanded and multiplied, they would have to learn and then they would have to transmit knowledge, and it would have to be specialized knowledge. So, for instance, it's obvious that in the naming of the animals, there's the beginning of zoology. And, and, and in the cultivating of the garden and the, the, the placing of the plants, there's the beginning of horticulture and, and of all the agriculture and all the other things that go along. And then you're going to have to transmit that information, so then you're going to have to develop education. And you're going to have to do record keeping, so you'll develop writing. You'll develop transportation and administration and all these things that would be necessary. And, and when the garden got to South Dakota and Minnesota, you, you realize that palm trees aren't going to work anymore. And so you're going you're to need to have some other sort of plant to be planted there. But then you're also going to need clothes. So then you've got the fashion industry, right? And because uh, I, I don't care how good it is, uh, when you're naked in Minnesota and it's 30 below, it's 30 below and naked's no good. So... You know, that wouldn't have been a sinful covering, but it would have been a covering. And, and they were equipped to do this by God. Now, when our first parents fell, they unplugged themselves from God, so to speak. And his power no longer flowed through them. And so everything that has to be done still has to be done, but it gets exponentially harder, much, much harder. The blessing of God no longer lies on Adam and Eve. It also no longer lies on the world. Now the world and the ground in particular is cursed. But it's not just the ground. All of work is cursed. And all of the work of his descendants is cursed. You know, my, my wife found a, a little thing on Instagram for me that I had seen before and I thought was just perfect and, and it's a plaque in somebody's garage and as a guy that turns wrenches from time to time I could appreciate that plaque and it had a, it had a bolt with the head snapped off of it mounted beside the bolt and it said every 20 minute job is one broken bolt away from a three day ordeal. That is my life as a mechanic right there. And, and that is that's because work is cursed. You know, in the, in, the, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the resurrection, all the bolts will come out and none of them will break. It'll be all right. Actually, you won't need to take the bolts out because the car won't break. I, I'm looking forward to that day. So it's not just the ground. All work is cursed and all the work of his descendants is cursed and it's cursed in two main ways. Number one, it gets much, much harder. It just takes more energy in to get something out. And number two, all of that labor, all of that energy in produces much, much less fruit. 
And that's the significance of those thorns and thistles we read about in the call to worship. In other words, Adam and his offspring are going to have to work much, much harder for a subsistence level of existence for themselves and and his family because God has withdrawn his spiritual power in large part from the equation. And it even seems like, if you read the book of Genesis carefully, it seems like God was more generous at first and that he kind of tapered the curse upward. Uh, He gave them time to adjust to this new reality because uh, before the flood, God restricted their diet to plants. And then after the flood, God expanded it and allowed them to eat meat because plants alone were no longer sufficient, generally speaking. In other words, it was impossible to be a vegan uh, from the fall of Adam and Eve, or from the flood, rather, until the 20th century when we had factory food and agriculture and distribution and things like that. Now, there's another relevant point of information. Because Adam is still driven from within by this dominion mandate or this cultural mandate. His job is not just to survive. His job is still to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and rule it and fill it. And this would lead, as I said, to the development of technologies like woodworking and construction, metalworking and mining and tool making and stone working and refinements in agriculture and animal husbandry. It would lead to political organizing and leadership. It would lead to medicine and veterinary science and education and communication and accounting and record keeping and economics and writing and engineering and later on to philosophy and logic and wisdom. All of these things are going to be developed in human culture out of the impetus of the dominion mandate. God put that inside of us. And it doesn't matter what people group you look at, they have some rudimentary form. Even the most primitive have some rudimentary form of these things. And then there are the valuable cultural artifacts that we enjoy so much. Things like music, Poetry and storytelling and literature, art, all of those things that arise out of our God given drive towards creativity and a love of beauty. In other words, what we call today civilization. Now, civilization is important because it will eventually improve the human condition. Humanity will advance. So, If one of Adam's offspring is going, for instance, to become an engineer and an architect, and he's going to design and build something important, let's say a a, a defensive fortification or a city wall or something like that, he's going to do so because a neighboring tribe keeps coming over and looting and pillaging and raping and destroying, and his people aren't safe. And that's what came with the fall. Violence and competition. Now, it ought to be immediately clear that if if he's going to do that, he cannot spend 12 hours a day farming to feed himself and his family and then use any daylight that's left over to build a city wall. It would never get done. He wouldn't have anybody to help him because they'd all be farming. So a man cannot farm and learn to do engineering and architecture. He just can't do both of them together. 
There's not enough time. There's not enough energy now. Which means the guy who does farm has to grow enough food for himself and his family, plus the engineer and his family, plus the laborers who are going to bring about the thing and their families. And how is he going to do that if it takes everything he's got just to feed his own family because the ground is cursed and it brings forth thorns and thistles easily and the fruit of the earth only with great pain and sweat. That's the basic problem. Now you take that basic problem and you multiply it exponentially across not just engineering, but woodworking and metalworking and mining because you've got to make weapons to defend yourself from behind your new wall. And tool making and sciences like ag science or metal science, so, so that you can go from stone tools and weapons to copper, to bronze, to iron, because that gives you an advantage. And developing a, a written language and then teaching that to key members of society. How are you going to get all of that done and feed everybody? Every ancient person who's in his lab, so to speak, playing with minerals and ores, trying to make a better axe, or a better spear, or a better sword, or a better plow, is not spending his time farming. Which means the ones who are farming have to produce enough for themselves and all the people who aren't farming. So you see the, the basis for all advancement and all civilization has to be built on the farmers producing enough food to feed themselves and all the people who have dedicated their lives to other important areas besides farming. And in an environment where God has cursed the ground so that raising bread is hard and raising noxious weeds is easy, where Adam's sons have to earn their bread by the sweat of their face, this is the environment they're operating in. And all of this need to advance and develop is driven both from within and from the need to protect yourself and your people from the threat of violence and the neighbors who wanted what you had. So developing a civilization is, of some kind is not optional. The development of civilization is really like an arms race. Who can develop the best tools and the best weapons the fastest? And if you read Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 6 and the flood, you, what do you see? You see violence on the face of the earth. You have Lamech who says, a young man wounded me and I killed him. You, you, and he's boasting about it. You see all of these things that speak of chaos and violence. You know, it's interesting. The, the, what's the first thing that Cain did when God kicked him out of the garden? He said, somebody's going to kill me. And he went east of Eden and he built a city. Now, in Hebrew, the word city is ir. I-R or I-Y-R, depending on how you want to transliterate it. And for instance, we find that word still uh, hanging on when we think about cities in the Middle East today, like Irkutsk in Iraq, it's the city of Kutsk, whatever Kutsk is, I don't know. 
But the definition of a city, as opposed to a town, was that it had a wall. So the first thing that Cain does is go build a place for he and his offspring to live and build a wall as fast as he can. So the development of this civilization is really like an arms race. Now, there were strategies that early people developed to help with this. For instance, they noticed that not all farmland was created equal. And farmland near rivers, they noticed, grew more food per acre than farmland elsewhere. And so the race was on to seize the best farmland. And that way, you have the, the same work inputs, but maybe you can get 100 bushels an acre of wheat instead of 50, so that, that helps. And that's where the civilizations, for instance, of Mesopotamia and the civilization of Egypt, Sodom and Gomorrah, we are discovering archeologically, we found them and we found evidence of their destruction. But the other thing we found is that their, their wealth was based on the fact that that farmland right there was the best for hundreds of miles in any direction, maybe thousands. So you had Sodom and Gomorrah, you had the Indus River Valley civilizations, if you want to step outside of the biblical narrative. So they did that. They seized the best farm ground, and then they had to defend it. So there were, you can also use cooperation between people. Cooperation, voluntary cooperation can make things more efficient. You can use animal power to make things better. Uh, it says in Proverbs 14.4, uh, there is much increase with the strength of an ox. But there's a downside to that, too, because an ox has to eat, too, and an ox eats a lot. And so you, you have to uh, have significant land set aside just to grow their food, even if it's just grass and hay. So that's land you can't grow other things on. But even when all of these strategies are employed, it's not quite enough. Not in this new environment of the curse. It, you see, one of, one of the things that I've come to the conclusion about is that one of the ways that we can think about the fall, honestly, is as a kind of energy crisis. There's just not enough energy to go around. When Adam and Eve disconnected themselves from God, they also disconnected the created order which God had created them to administer from God's blessing and from a great measure of God's power. Spirit and God is spirit, spirit is a kind of energy or power. One of the ways you can think about, I think profitably, one of the ways you can think about God is as unlimited energy that is a person. And so, you know, when God's with you, there's unlimited energy available to do whatever needs to be done. But the minute you unplug from him, you're on your own with a little power pack that he's given you. And it doesn't recharge easily. Uh, spirit is the basis of everything that we see. All, all of matter and energy that we see is based on spirit. I can refer you to Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, on page 91, if you want to explore this and think about it a little further. So Adam and Eve and their offspring are trying to run their lives on their own. They're trying to manage the world on their own. And doing so is kind of like trying to run all of the electrical appliances in your house off of a 12-volt car battery. It's just not sufficient. There's just not enough power there to do what you want to do. Now, God had, and still has, an answer to that problem. 
And Jesus articulated that answer in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, Do not be anxious about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall wear, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, I know the world doesn't have enough, and I will make up the difference, says God. And that answer didn't suddenly appear there in Matthew chapter 6 in Jesus' day. This is illustrated concretely through the whole of the Scripture. We find it in the life of Isaac in Genesis 26, 12 through 16, where Isaac uh, rents a plot of ground from his pagan neighbors, and he starts farming it. And God's like, here we go, I'm going to bless that field. And it just produced way more than his neighbors were making. And it scared him. They're like, this guy is poised to become rich in our midst. And, and God just exploded the, the produce of that land because he's God and he can do that. We find it in the life of Jacob in Genesis 30, verses 25 through 43, where, God, where Laban is trying to rip Jacob off and God just multiplies the flocks and the herds under Jacob's care. We find it in, in, in the life of Joseph in Genesis 39 and Genesis 41. We find it in the whole sweep of the Exodus narrative. Well, what does God basically do in Exodus? God puts the children of Israel in a desert where there are simply not enough naturally occurring resources to survive. And then he feeds them and he gives them water. And he gives them all the other things that they need, including protection from their enemies. And he does it every day, day in and day out for 40 years. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. In the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, we see it with the loaves and the fishes, right? You take a few loaves and a few fishes and you multiply it to feed 5,000. We see it, we see it in the, the miraculous catch of fish that Jesus gave repeatedly to Peter. We, we see it in the, in the episode where, where they need their, ta their coin to pay their tax, and Jesus says, go fishing, and when you pull the fish up, open its mouth, and there'll be a coin in there, and pay the tax with that coin. We see it in the turning of the water into wine. Loved ones, one of the major messages of the whole Bible is that a good and competent God will care for all of your needs when natural systems of provision fall short or fail, as they will, if you just place all your confidence in God and do what He tells you is good and right to do. And you do it even if what seems or what is good and right seems foolish from a worldly perspective that doesn't take God into account. In other words, even under the fall and the curse on the ground, all the people of God who were walking with God would have to do is just trust Him and ask for what they need and have confidence in Him to provide. That was all that God was looking for. What, what was God doing? He was looking to begin reestablishing that which was lost in the Garden of Eden by faith. And that ability to look past the natural systems that we can all see and to see the spiritual reality that actually undergirds and sustains all of these natural realities and to live in calm reliance on that fact that God can very easily bring from that vast invisible realm of spiritual reality anything and everything that is required and that he can be counted on to do so if we will simply rely on him like a little child relies upon her father that is one of the main messages 
of the Scriptures. And we're terrified even today to believe it. This ability to see the spiritual world and to rely on it and the God who administers it is what 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 and Hebrews eleven twenty seven talk about as seeing the invisible. And from that we understand that faith is not some irrational leap in the dark. Faith is an organ or a perceptive sense like seeing or hearing is. And it's granted by God. And it allows you to perceive and rely on a reality that is not apparent to those who don't have the ability to perceive it. You know, it's interesting, there's two ways to fly an airplane. You can land an airplane with the windows all blacked out. You can fly with your eyes, or you can fly with those instruments. And both will work just fine. If you just listen to your instruments, you have confidence in your instruments. You can land an airplane just as smoothly as you can with your eyes. But if you've got an old airplane that doesn't have all those instruments, all you've got is your eyes. In other words, there's, there's information that's available, but you don't have the ability to perceive it because you don't have all of the modern instruments. But the minute you have that, you have the ability to land the plane, even if, you're, even if your windows are blacked out or there's fog or rain or anything else. And faith is like those instruments. They can perceive, faith can perceive things that are there and guide you safely home when you can't see what needs to be seen. But lost human beings who are apart from God prefer to stay lost. They prefer to keep the true and living God at arm's length. They cannot bring themselves to trust and rely on Him. They don't believe that He will provide for them in ways they can't see or understand or anticipate. And so if ox power and voluntary cooperation and coordination and good uh, farm ground are not sufficient to get them where they want to go, and if you're still going to have to manage to eat your bread from the sweat of your brow, then the only thing left is to earn your bread by the sweat of someone else's brow. It's to steal their labor under the threat of force and to harness their labor for your projects and your purposes. That's your only option that's left. And that is why the or, that is the origin of slavery. That is why slavery in one form or another has existed all throughout human history in all the different places in the world. It's, it, it solves this problem. It's your only other option if you're not going to rely on God to solve this problem. And every single people group on the face of the planet has made history, or throughout history rather, has made use of it. It's interesting, there's a, there's a statue of the Indian chief uh, from the tribe in the, in the Northwest that Seattle is named after. Chief Seattle is the kind of the anglicized version of his word, of his name. And what most people don't realize is that Chief Seattle grew rich and powerful by trading slaves. Indians, other Indians from other tribes. He, he would go up and down the west coast of what today is the United States, and he would capture people 
from their various tribal groups, and he would kidnap them, and he would take them away, and then he would sell them to other people groups. And that was how he, he became wealthy and powerful in his day and in his land. All civilization, throughout all of history, all over the world, is just a thin veneer or crust that's supported by untold multitudes living in slavery, and hard labor, and squalor, and oppression, and exploitation, and poverty, and war, and conquest. That is human history in the fall. All of human history basically can be summed up as a strong group looking over at their neighbors and going, what do you got there? Uh, that's really nice. I like that. It's mine now. And I'm going to take it away from you. And if you won't yield it up peaceably, I'll kill you. And then I'll make slaves of your wife and your children so that I can continue to expand my personal project. That's human history. The panicked desire to get ahead of your group or tribe or nation's rivals and accumulate power and wealth and glory for your people group is one of Satan's chief tools in managing the world apart from God. He literally has mighty demons who are personally overseeing it at the highest levels of human organization. I mean, you go to the book of Daniel and Daniel prays and God sends an angel as a messenger to him, but that angel is, is kept, he's delayed, because he has to wrestle with someone called the Prince of Persia. Well, that wasn't a human being. That was a demon who was in charge of administering the Persian Empire to bring about maximum whatever it is that Satan was after in the Persian Empire. But God in His mercy and in His common grace has also been guiding human development and human civilization to the place where these problems could be solved without slavery. After thousands and thousands of years of slavery, as a, a feature of common life all over the globe, all of a sudden in the 19th century, among the most technologically advanced people on the planet, which was Europeans, slavery started being abolished all over Europe, all over North America, and all over South America where Europeans had colonized. Why? Well, it wasn't because of a dawning of, of moral righteousness, you know, that we all suddenly realized how good everything would be if we just treated everybody nice. It wasn't because of that. It was the discovery of fossil fuels and the development of more and more sophisticated machines that were able to do the work that slaves had done before. You see, if you just compare energy with energy and you take a barrel of oil, this freaked me out when I first read it, when you take a barrel of oil, which is 55 gallons of oil, and you look at the amount of energy that's in that oil and you compare energy to energy, there is five years worth of human labor in a 55-gallon barrel of oil. So in other words, you develop the right machine that runs off that oil, and you give a guy a shovel, for instance, and say, you start digging, he will dig for five years before he's done all the work that, that, that can be done by a machine using that 
barrel of oil. And so that is why slavery ended. That right there. You don't have to feed and clothe and house a tractor or a combine or a cotton harvester 365 days a year, but you do a slave. And you need a lot more than one slave to pick all that cotton, but you only need one cotton harvester. One cotton harvester can actually pick all the cotton on several farms. And so the achievements of civilization that were built on the backs of slaves all over the world were eventually sufficient to offer at least a basic kind of liberation to the last generation of slaves. Not only in America, but also in places like Haiti and Cuba and Suriname and Brazil. And even today, slavery still persists in parts of Africa and in the Middle East and in China. Almost everyone in here has a cell phone. In that cell phone is a battery. In that battery is a chemical, an element called cobalt. And that is necessary to keep that battery from catching on fire. 50% of all the cobalt on the planet is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's mined by child slaves. Oh, they're, they're paid a buck or two a day so that their masters don't have to actually be responsible for feeding and clothing and housing them, but they're slaves. They don't have the option to work or not to work. They're told where to go. That stuff is toxic. It creates a dust that infiltrates your lungs and poisons you. And little kids are mining this stuff, carrying these heavy sacks of cobalt ore, and they're selling it to Chinese, who then take it over to China and refine it, and then turn it into batteries using the slave labor of a group of people called Uyghurs, who are Muslims. And it's been, this is well known. This has been reported in, in major media outlets for years. You know what's being done about it? Very little. You know why? Because we need the cobalt to keep our civilization running. And we can just keep it just far enough away that we don't have to think about the fact that you've got the product of slave labor in your pocket carrying around with you wherever you go. That's how slavery continued for as long as it did among good people because there was no substitute. And hey, we've got we to gotta have batteries for our phones and for all the other things, electric cars. It's the same thing. Batteries and electric cars need that cobalt. And so if we're going to save the planet from global warming, we need batteries. And if we're going to have batteries, we need cobalt. And if we're going to get the cobalt, I guess we need slaves. And so we'll just quietly keep doing what we're doing. And, it, and it's not like those poor people there had an alternative. It's not like they were going to go to Harvard instead of working in the cobalt mines as slaves. So maybe we're making their lives a little bit better too, right? You know, at least they're making $2 a day. They have a subsistence. Maybe they wouldn't have had that. And so we just gloss over it. And we don't worry about it. How else is the world going to develop, we say? So much good can be had for just this little bit of evil in this one situation. That's the reasoning. And it's been the reasoning for millennia. And I'm not defending it. I'm just describing it. 
And we still live in a world where things can get so bad that the choice is not between good and evil, but between evil and evil. And so there are people all over the world who through history have been able to get into a position where they say, if I sell my child as a slave, she'll be able to eat. If I don't sell her as a slave, she'll starve to death. And so will I. That just happened recently in Afghanistan after we pulled out. That is how things go on as they go. And that is why these things persist. Loved ones, there are some problems in the world, I think, that are just not going to be solved until Jesus comes back. And we can do what we can to minimize things. But we can't fix it. Because your choice is going to be between evil and evil in a lot of these situations. And we who live here in America, we're, we're really blessed, and we need to take that into account that we don't often face these kind of dilemmas, but there are people, including our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the place, who do. And we should do what we can to alleviate it. But we need to understand what's really driving it. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's not black and white. It persists for a reason. Now, next week, if the Lord spares us, we'll begin to look at, the, at slavery in the Bible and, and understand how the people of God being in relationship with God changes some of those facts and doesn't necessarily change others because the world is a broken place and we're not going to fix it. We are the ones who are fixed in the midst of it, but we can't just go out and make the world a better place because thorns and thistles and evil still abound. And we can do what we can do, but we can't do what we can't do. But Father, if I have said anything this morning that is useful, helpful, correct, I pray that we would be caused to take it to heart. If I've said anything this morning that is unhelpful or incorrect or harmful, I pray that you would cause it to be mercifully forgotten and graciously overlooked. In your name we pray.